Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. Hello, this is William Salmer. I'm a contributing editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, and I'm speaking today with Scott Knorr, who is Director of Pharmacy at the University of Minnesota Medical Center. He has a paper, he and his co-authors, in AJHP on lessons learned from a practice model change at an academic medical center. Well, welcome, Scott. I appreciate you taking time for uh, our discussion here today. Thank you, Bill. Now, you've been uh, director of pharmacy there since 2003. Uh, You started as an assistant director a couple years before that. Describe for us briefly what the practice model was like when you first started work at the University of Minnesota Medical Center. Sure. Uh, The practice model, for very good reasons, was what I would probably call sort of a traditional specialist model. It had really been in place probably since sort of the 80s when, when at that time we, we kind of had two levels of pharmacists. You know, we had we had some folks who were PharmD residency trained and they tended to be in those clinical specialist positions. We had decentralized services bill, but due to the, the high order entry volume, those while the, the pharmacists were up on the nursing units, they were really primarily order entry pharmacists. And uh, so we had sort of a two-tiered pharmacist structure when I got here. Okay. Well, as you look back to that period when you became director of pharmacy, what was it, Scott, that led you to believe that it was necessary to change the practice model? Really, there were two things, Bill. The first was was what I thought was would help patient care, because um, of that model, we had great. Our specialists were very good, um, but we had kind of two two tiers of coverage. So Monday through Friday days, we had extremely good clinical services. However, if you happen to be a patient on an evening or a weekend, you would not have the same clinical coverage. So one of the primary goals was to increase the coverage time. Also, you know, if if one of our clinical specialists would have gotten hit by a bus or something, God forbid, we didn't have a lot of backup in specialty areas. So a little bit of succession planning was a part of it. The second part of that, so the first one's patient care. The second part was really staff engagement. And we've had a, a strong residency program for a lot of years. And I, I we, we've been able to hire probably, I think, 32 residents since I've been here. So residents would be on rotation with us. They'd be students with us. They'd be on rotation and they'd round with the teams and they'd recommend things and they'd do kinetics. And they really enjoyed that. However, when they took jobs with us, that would generally be into a decentral pharmacist position and they would be really tied to order entry and not be able to do a lot of the things that they're able to do as residents. And so I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction. Staff was, you know, especially newer staff was ready for a change. Okay. I see. Well, why don't you just give us sort of a top level overview of the practice model that you instituted? Uh, What's different about it? Yeah, you bet. We, completely reorganized uh, the department bill, and it's a long change process. The article covers that more in depth. Uh, so we, we certainly met with all groups and had a practice model uh, committee that met for, oh, it probably went on too long. What we came out of that with was kind of reorganize the hospital into teams. The teams were based on patient population. There was some geography. You don't want people going up 
six flights of stairs. But really what we tried to do is optimize the use of automation and technicians. Minnesota's uh, been kind of fortunate in the, the way back in the 80s. Uh, Bonnie Sense and some folks work with the Board of Pharmacy to allow us to do tech check tech for cart fill. So when I got here in 2001, I worked with the Board of Pharmacy to add on that we could do tech check tech for, uh, I, I worked through MSHP and with the multiple partners, it wasn't just me, pharmacy leaders throughout the cities to allow that to be expanded for automated dispensing cabinet refill. And we've actually got a very nice summary of that on our Minnesota Society webpage and sort of a toolkit because we have a training program and it's very rigorous. But being able to optimize the use of technicians. So when we created our teams, our five teams, it wasn't just pharmacists, it was pharmacists and technicians. And the technicians, you know, we gave them pagers. I'm a big one for accountability, Bill. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel that if you're put in charge of a unit and, and told these are your patients instead of, you know, I work here today, I work there tomorrow and I'm running all over the hospital. But, so the technicians take the same kind of ownership for their patients and their nurses, not so much the physicians, they don't interact too much with the physicians like the pharmacists do, but they, they really feel a sense of accountability. And they, they care because now it's Mark or Julie is the nurse without the meds for their patient who's in pain or vomiting. So, uh, you know, so accountability. So anyway, we have our teams and we don't have clinical specialists anymore. Part of that's math. We created some team clinical leader positions and really that's not, clinical specialist does not equal clinical leader for us here. We, um, like I said, if you do the math, we went from nine and a half FTEs as a clinical specialist to five FTEs of clinical leaders. So I have a clinical leader for each team and then a number of pharmacists, depending on the volume and technicians who kind of rotate through that. We now have 16 hour coverage during the week and eight hour coverage on the weekends. So without going into too much detail, that's kind of the, the gist of it. That's a great top level overview. You know, Scott, I'm quite interested in the prominent role for technicians on your teams. How are technicians at your institution trained? Uh, do you require a certification? Can you give us some sense yep. of that? Our hospital is part of six Fairview hospitals. At all the other hospitals require certification. We have a, a technician union, so we are working toward that. We will ultimately have required technician certification, but we have to kind of work through those contract issues. On the, the training part, we, we don't hire anyone as a technician unless they have at least six months of experience in a pharmacy. Now, some of that's retail pharmacy. Um, and then we have uh, a pretty extensive training program. On top of that, in order to be tech check tech certified, we have, again, on the Minnesota Society of Health System Pharmacists webpage, that 60-page document that talks about all the, the training and the education that we have. We also, because we're a, a health system, have the advantage of having a corporate pharmacy office, uh, and we have our own training department. So all new staff, pharmacists and technicians, go to our off-site pharmacy headquarters, and uh, we have a, a very good training program there. Okay. You know, your paper does really a wonderful job of describing in some detail the process you went through in making these changes, and it's clear from the manuscript that this was not an easy process. I wonder if you could just give us some of the key characteristics of that process. For example, you mentioned uh, this committee or task force that was put together, and I think you used an outside facilitator for this process. Maybe that would be a good starting point if you could comment on that a little bit. Absolutely. It was very helpful to use a facilitator. I'm sure um, around ASHP there and multiple things you've, you've used facilitators, they have special skills. They, they do this for a living. They know how to help a group reach consensus. 
so that just one, I guess the first thing is to have the skills that maybe we don't have or that we need to build. The next part is it really gives you an opportunity for outside thought. It's kind of easy to get into group think sometimes. So a, a good facilitator will will question you and uh, make sure you're, you know, keep you honest. You know, that facilitator, we didn't just use with the, the group that was meeting. The facilitator also helped uh, help me prepare for the meetings uh, to, you know, look at possible politics and kind of think things through. So I, I can't say enough about the benefit of, of having a facilitator. Scott, I assume uh, that you're happy with how things played out. Uh, have you seen uh, the benefits that you were hoping for by, by these changes? I'll answer that with a, a, a yes, but I am thrilled with the things that have happened. You know, Bill, the biggest thing, I, I mentioned the word accountability before, and this was the kind of thing that could technically happen on a unit before the practice model change. I'd have two pharmacists on the same unit. One would be doing orders and one would be doing clinical work. I like to talk in extreme examples, so this isn't an actual example. But if a nurse were to come up to the clinical specialist and say, the Pixis machine is on fire, that mm -hmm. pharmacist's usual response would be, I'm not that pharmacist. There's nothing that drives a uh, director of pharmacy crazier than not having accountability and teamwork. So now, if an automated dispensing cabinet is out, nurses can't get their meds, everybody cares. Uh, now, I don't think people intentionally didn't care about patients before. I'm not saying that at all, but they only really felt accountable for their particular work. So now if you talk to the team leader, or the pharmacist or technician, everything is, is important, which means accreditation, which means quality, which means cost savings. So alignment of goals is so much better than it was before. And, you know, it's not unusual you know, if you identify more with your medical team, with the pharmacy department, and that, that can happen. You can be on rounds and you get all your personal satisfaction out of interacting with physicians. That's a good thing. But really, in order to be successful as a department, we have to be marching toward a strategic plan together. And if, our, if we aren't very clearly aligned uh, with our goals, that makes it a little bit harder. So I, the kind of term I always use, and I use it with myself, is uh, never forget where your paycheck comes from. Mm -hmm. Because the paycheck at the University of Minnesota Department of Pharmacy comes from the pharmacy department. Right, right. Now, having said that, am I happy with it? I think that we created about the best model that we could for the time of 2005. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? It's not 2005 anymore. Right. So I am really looking forward to the, the practice model summit, and uh, I'm going to take back learnings from that. And we are going to have another practice model summit at the University of Minnesota Medical Center and, and say, now, hey, we did some great things, but guess what? Times change. How do we continue to improve patient care and push the profession forward? What is your sense, Scott, of uh, the types of things that you'll be addressing at your medical center as you continue to work on your practice model and make it even better? The biggest gap we have, Bill, is that, and, and some of this is addressed in the um, healthcare reform legislation. They have some pilots for accountable care organizations. We do a great job today of taking care of patients while they're in the hospital. And I think our clinic pharmacists do a great job of taking care of patients when they're you know, getting the discharge meds at a, at a Fairview clinic. I think our home infusion pharmacy does a great job of taking care of home infusion patients. Our mail order pharmacy does a good job of taking care of mail order and our special pharmacy does a good job, but we're all living in silos. We need to take care and accountability for that entire patient across the continuum of care because the one common factor in, in all these patients is at each one of those steps, there's a medication involved. We need to focus and do a better job 
it transitions care. So uh, we need pharmacy-driven med rec when they come in at each transition of care. And we need, when the patient's leaving, we need a pharmacist to educate them in their room or parents for pediatric patients, hopefully capture their discharge scripts. Um, and then three days after they're gone, we need to call them. The pharmacy department needs to call them and say, hey, are you having any side effects or your symptoms alleviated? If not, you know, help communicate and facilitate with the physician. At 30 days out, Bill, we need to be calling again. We, you know, uh, one of the automation things we're going to, we're implementing so we'll have the same electronic medical record, hopefully in February, inpatient, outpatient. We need to check in 30 days. Have they got their refill? If not, why? So we, we just really need to take accountability for the entire patient, which uh, we're not doing a very good job of right now. Yes, and I can imagine there will be uh, many, many challenges as you begin addressing that issue. Scott, one of the great values of your paper, I thought, was you conclude with some uh, eight lessons that you've learned uh, going through this process of practice model change. And we'll refer listeners, of course, to uh, the entire manuscript for all those lessons. But let me ask you about one or two of them. Um, your very first lesson, uh, you need sound operations first. Could you comment on that a little bit from the perspective of your changes? Bill, that's a, a great question, a great observation. My philosophy, and you got to know, I'm a I'm a master's trained uh, pharmacy admin resident grad myself. So operations is is very important. You can't do high level clinical services if you cannot safely and in a timely fashion get drugs to patients. So you know, if you're new to a department or you're in a department in a leadership role, it's absolutely essential to do. It's first things first. You got to prioritize. You have to have safe sterile products. You have to have efficient automation for the delivery process and all that. Now you don't stop doing clinical work to focus on that, but it's it's just the ABCs. It's Maslow's hierarchy. However you want to do it. Without a strong foundation of operations, it would not be prudent to focus on the higher level things. One of those is credibility with your senior administration. They're getting emails, angry phone calls from nurses and physicians because you can't get drugs patients. Then you're not going to get the resources you need to to do high level things in the pharmacy department. Right. Another one of your lessons learned, you label it anticipate politics. And I believe this relates to the fact that, uh, you know, your practice model had been in place for a good number of years. A lot of people had vested interest in, uh, you know, maintaining the status quo. And you've got to address that. So perhaps you can comment on that for us briefly. When I take students on my leadership management rotation, when we, we teach our, our PGY1 residents and our master's residents, politics makes the world go around. And you know, that certainly doesn't mean if you know, you're out there in Bethesda, so you're closer to the rat race in D.C. It doesn't mean if you're on the left or the right. But what politics is, is understanding other people's perspective, really where they're coming from, what is important to them, and also anticipating how that's going to flow. You can kind of you know, do a little flow chart of of just who this, these people are going to talk to and what their issues are. And you can head a lot of that off. I think the most important thing is to always, you know, during your discussions, always bring it back to the patient. You're not doing this to punish anyone. Actually, we have phenomenal staff and all the people in all the roles we wanted to keep. We didn't want to get rid of people. What we want to do is change the practice and move it forward. So certainly um, there's some, some FAQs, a document at the, the end of the paper that uh, we found uh, very helpful to communicate proactively because you have to communicate with your nursing leadership. You absolutely have to communicate with the physician leadership, especially if you have people whose roles are going to be changing, who docs have known for 20 years and work closely with. And senior administration has to understand what's going on because 
a, a major fundamental shift like this. It's just people's nature. People get defensive. They they will maybe think that you have something out against them, which which you absolutely don't. So always bring it back to the patient and communicate, communicate, communicate. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you taking time to uh, share these perspectives uh, with me and with our listeners. I encourage uh, everyone to read your paper, which is uh, really a fine case study in instituting change in an academic medical center. Uh, this is William Zelmer, AJHP contributing editor, and I've been speaking with Dr. Scott Knorr, who is director of pharmacy at the University of Minnesota Medical Center Pharmacy. And again, he has a paper, he and his co-authors, on lessons learned from a practice model change at an academic medical center in AJHP. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.